There's often an unspoken thought today that humanity is getting better. That when you look at the past, you're looking at what is more primitive. And the short answer to that is not. You look at Genesis 4, first murder. You've got justice and brokenness that Jesse has been talking about. I think I'm cutting in and out a little bit, am I not? Okay. We'll see what's happening here. If it gets a little worse, I will switch to this mic. When you look at the past, when you look at today, God is the same. People are the same. Even though we've had technology advancements, certainly, we're still basically the same, which is why we can look at the Old Testament, at Elijah and his situation, and we can have a sermon series called Living Faithfully in a Shifting Culture, because the culture was shifting then, and the culture is shifting today. Let me take a few minutes and do just a little bit of review from last week. And first talk about the situation that we encountered last week in 1 Kings 17. The 12 tribes of Israel have been divided after Solomon's death because of Solomon's sin. The 10 northern tribes are the, tri are the kingdom of Israel. The two southern tribes are the, tr the kingdom of Judah. God chose the man to be the first king of the ten northern tribes. He chose a man named Jeroboam. And if you read the history, God sent a prophet to Jeroboam and basically gave him a, a promise very similar to the one he gave David. He told Jeroboam, if you love God, if you follow God's ways, if you do what God calls you to do, then your family will continue to rule this kingdom. But he had a problem, and in this particular problem that he had, he chose not to trust God. And that was this. There was another law that God had given, and that was that all 12 tribes were to gather at the temple three times a year to worship God for special holy days. We now call those holidays. And he was afraid, and we know this because we're told this in the text, he was afraid that when the people go down to the temple, because it's in the southern kingdom, it's in the other kingdom, that their hearts would be turned away from him. And so he decides to fix the situation by creating a new way to worship God. New, new priests, new places, new, well, not new, statues. He introduced them as part of the worship of God. He made a political decision. Every king after him followed in his pattern of corrupted worship of God. And it isn't as if God said nothing when it happened. God sent prophets to Jeroboam right away saying, this is not good, you are wrong, you need to change, and he refused. So then 70 years go by and we, we uh, meet Ahab. He also has a political marriage. He marries Jezebel. She brings with her the worship of Baal, and Ahab embraces the worship of Baal. And we're going to see he is trying to actually hold onto both gods at the same time, Yahweh, Old Testament name of God, and Baal. Elijah comes on the scene and makes the pronouncement, he's a prophet of God and there's not going to be any more rain, and there isn't. There's no rain, there's no dew, it's gone. And God miraculously provides for Elijah, first when he's at the creek in the middle of nowhere, 
and then later when he's living with the, the widow of Zarephath. We looked at some themes last week that God wants a people for himself. And since, ever since Adam and Eve, we've all turned away from God, God says he's going to get that people that he wants by redemption and restoration. In redemption, he's going to pay the debt that we owe God. He's going to pay it himself. And in restoration, he's, God is going to fix what we have broken. God calls all of us, all humanity, to obey him, to do God's law. And Jesus summarized God's law as love God and love others. And if you stop and think about it, all of our problems would be fixed if we loved God perfectly and loved others perfectly. There wouldn't be any more wrongdoing at all, but we don't. And because we don't, God sends encouragements and motivations, both positive and negative. We looked at that last week. And God calls us to remember, just like he called the people of Israel back then, to remember who God is and who we are and why it is we need God. And then we looked at how we apply, can apply this and, and use this in our lives. First, we saw that the right worship of God is a constant struggle for all of us because our hearts naturally wander and naturally turn away. God is the one who provides life. He is sovereign over all life and death. God provides what we need for the calling that he has given us. I remember reading some years ago, this was back in the 1700s, 1800s, a woman came up to her pastor. She was a um, middle-aged woman, good health, but she was terrified of dying. And he talked with her and found out that, yes, she was a Christian, but she had this fear. And he said, he told her this, God's given you good health. He's given you life. He's going to give you what you need right now to live. And when it comes time for you to die, he's going to give you what they called back then dying grace. You'll be able to die in peace with comfort, knowing that God loves you just as much then as he did before, and he will love you forever. And that's exactly what happened with her. God used those words to encourage her, and she lived the rest of her life trusting God, and when it came time to die, God gave her that dying grace. God gives us what we need for the calling he has for us. And then finally, because we still turn away from God, we sometimes experience a spiritual desert, and again, if you think about it, since God is life and the source of life, when you turn away from him, you're turning to death. And we have those times of spiritual desert and dryness and difficulty. Today we're looking at the title, Living in a Hostile World. We're going to look at three men and two sets of prophets. The three men are Elijah, Ahab, and we're going to meet today Obadiah. Two sets of prophets are the prophets of God and then the prophets of Baal and Asherah. We're going to be working our way through 1 Kings 18, verses 1 to 19. We're just going to read together in just a second, verses 1 to 8. And I just want to mention, there's going to be a reference to Samaria. And Samaria is a city and it is the capital of the ten northern tribes. So remain seated, but let's read together our text, 1 Kings 18, verses 1 to 8. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, 
and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Elijah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, Behold, Elijah is here. Now remember, this uh, famine, this lack of rain, is God publicly confronting Baal and publicly discrediting Baal. God, in a very dramatic way, is warning the people of evil. He is warning them of the evil of false worship and of the corrupted worship of God. Now, as I said last week, Baal was a God who supposedly brings rain. And yet here, Elijah makes his pronouncement, God has stopped all the rain in Israel and in Baal country, in the land just north of Israel where Tyre and Sidon are, which is where they worshipped Baal as well. And he's done it for three years. That's pretty public. No rain. And as we're going to see next week, there's going to be a contest on Mount Carmel. Now it's easy to kind of just focus on the physical drought that they've got and to kind of imagine. And for most of us, we would have to imagine what that would be like. We have had droughts of a kind, but usually it's just where the, you know, our grass turns brown. Maybe we have water restrictions, but we haven't had to worry about where our food comes from, that we're going to run out of food. And they were in that place. But there's another kind of drought going on too, and I don't want you to miss it. And that is a spiritual drought, a lack of the Word of God in the nation of Israel that had been going on a whole lot longer than just three years. Now, it isn't that the Word of God had totally disappeared, because it hadn't. It had not totally disappeared. There were prophets of God that confronted Jeremiah. I'm sorry, Jeroboam. There were families in Israel that in response to the corrupted worship chose to move down to Judah. We read that in a text later on. And even 70 years later now with Ahab, there are still prophets of God. But it looks like the majority of the people in Israel had accepted the corrupted worship of God. And whenever you have a corrupted worship of God, you also get a distortion of God's Word, or God's Word is ignored, or it is replaced. 
with some other idea. And that had been going on in Israel. Now, this statement is true, and it's true for all of us. Every one of us choose something to live by, whether we do it consciously or not. Whether it is a religion or the thought of the day, whether it is some other philosophy or God's Word, we all choose something to live by, and there are no exceptions. So when, as we are making our choices, as we live, and as we make choices of what we're going to do and what we speak, we're either choosing in that decision to follow God or to turn away or fo and, and follow something else. There really is no neutral anywhere. Now we read in verse 2 that there is a severe famine in the land. And we already have the picture from last week that the creeks dried up. Well, they had creeks. They also had wells. They didn't have public water like we do today where they can pipe it in from miles away. Their public water was a well for many of them. And if it dried up, then they'd have to dig deeper and hopefully they can find water. Maybe that first year before the creeks dried up, but there was no rain and they still had water in the well, they could have some gardens and irrigate a little bit. But eventually all that just ended. And... So they're digging into their food reserves and they're trying to buy food from other lands. But remember, all of their trade was done with pack animals, camels and other animals. They didn't have 18-wheelers to bring in a whole truckload, you know, several thousand pounds of food at one time. It was much harder. Read in verse 4 that Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord. What that means is Jezebel, Jezebel was killing the prophets of God. Now we're going to look in just a few minutes at how you and I can respond to hostility to God and God's Word. But one of the things that we see here is that following God does not guarantee you an easy life or a long life on this earth. There are plenty of illustrations, especially you look like in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, talking of prophets that spoke God's word and ended up dying for it. But following God and having a personal relationship with God does guarantee these things. First, eternal life in heaven. Okay, but it's not just sometime in the future. It also guarantees us God's care here and now and in heaven as well. And we also know this, that until Jesus comes, there will continue to be conflict between God and evil, not just between good and evil. Now, one other thought related to this. Remember that the prophets of God were God's spokesmen. They spoke God's word to people. Well, when you and I are disobeying God, we usually don't want to hear God's word. Okay? Because it's convicting, it's uncomfortable. So in one sense, no surprise what Jezebel is doing, that she's trying to silence them. And we also read that Ahab is looking for water and grass for his animals, and he sends Obadiah to do the same thing. And you don't see anything, any mention of Ahab caring for his people. So here's the warning. If you decide, oh, well, then it's very obvious. Ahab does not care for his people. Okay, that's called an argument from silence. 
and you have to be careful. Now, if you want to say, spiritually, did Ahab care for his people? Not well at all. That you have absolute proof of. That he turned away from God, that he was trying, he was worshiping the Baals, trying to do this balancing act. But you and I have to be careful when we read the Bible and we read into it something that isn't said there to make sure that we hold it as that, just that, an opinion. And only go with what is very clearly spoken. In our verses, then, we also meet Obadiah. And Obadiah's name means servant of God. We're told he's a follower of God. We're told that when the prophets of God are being killed by Jezebel, that Obadiah hides a hundred of them and feeds them while he continues to oversee Ahab's household. So very likely Ahab, or I mean Obadiah, is able to use his position in the household to actually accomplish this. Now, Obadiah was not the only person in the Bible to be in his kind of situation, where he is following God and the person he works for isn't. You've got Joseph, who is sold by his brothers into slavery, he ends up a slave in Egypt, serving Potiphar. And then later, when he's taken out of slavery and made number two in the land, he's still serving the Pharaoh. And they did not, as far as we know, acknowledge God for who he is. You've got Daniel, who is most likely a teenager in Judah when the Babylonians conquered Judah, and he was carried off to Babylon and never returned home again. Spent the rest of his life there, and he served King Nebuchadnezzar, who very clearly, at least for a good long while, did not recognize God for who he is. And then one other one I want to mention very briefly that is a little bit different situation. With, with Joseph and Daniel, they're both in families that recognize God and honor God, at least in some way. The other one is Naaman. And he's a commander of the army of Syria. So he grew up worshiping other gods. And yet, at, at the height of his power, he comes down with leprosy. And he's got a Jewish girl who's a servant in his house, and she says, oh, there's somebody in, a, in, in Israel who can heal you. And so off he goes. And he ends up meeting Elisha. And he, it's kind of funny to read it, because Naaman is not impressed at all with the fact that Elisha is not impressed with him. And he gets angry. And he gets even more angry when Elisha says, oh, uh, here's what you need to do. Go uh, take a bath in the River Jordan. And now he's really mad. Most of us think, River Jordan, river, I've seen a river. I've maybe even been in a river. Okay, I know what it is. No. The River Jordan starts off coming out of the Sea of Galilee as fresh water. It ends up going into the Dead Sea. Now, have you ever thought of why it's called the Dead Sea? Because everything in it is dead. Okay, it does not sustain life. Well, how does that happen? The River Jordan just meanders, goes back and forth and back and forth, and the sun is always shining brightly in Israel, and the water evaporates, and it gets more and more as it goes further south, like sludge. So that by the time it enters into the Dead Sea, it is a little bit of water and a lot of minerals. It's a dirty river. Well, his servants convinced Naaman to go ahead and take a bath. 
And when he comes out, he is clean. A different man comes back to Elisha and says, I know who the one true God is, and I'm going to worship him for the rest of my life. Now, and he recognized this too. When I get back to Syria, I'm going to have to go in with my king to his temple where he worships his God. But I want you to know, I'm going to be with him, but I'm going to be worshiping Yahweh, the one true God. And Elisha basically gives him his blessing and says, you're good to go. Go ahead and go. Point is, Obadiah is not the only person to be in this situation of honoring God and trying to serve him while having to work for somebody who doesn't honor God. And God is going to often put us in that place as well, where he calls us to serve and to work without compromising your faith. But often when we're in that situation, we're going to be presented with a choice. Are you going to follow God with whatever the consequences are, or are you going to compromise so that you fit in, so that you're accepted, so that you don't lose anything? A number of years ago, I was, uh, when I was a contractor, my supervisor came in one day and gave me my timesheet and said, Mark, I want you to fill in that you worked on this project this many hours. And then he turned around and left. Problem was, I had not worked on that project. And I'm sitting there, and I, I'm almost overcome with this crazy fear. I'm about to lose my job. Because... I knew I hadn't worked on it, and I knew I could not in good conscience put my time down there and sign my name to it. And so I went back to my supervisor, and I gave him my timesheet, and I said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. Not in good conscience. He didn't say anything. I found out later that my supervisor and his boss both, and, and, and I, was I was told this, said, Mark, we really appreciate your integrity. I didn't lose my job. I didn't get sent off to the wilderness someplace, you know, for some kind of punishment. Everything worked out fine. But that's not always the case. But every one of us are going to have those times where we are challenged. Are we going to follow God? Or are we going to compromise? Now, remember the situation as we get a little further in the text. God has hidden Elijah for three years. And now God tells Elijah, go back to Israel. I'm going to send the rain. And by the way, again, this is not spoken. You don't have any indication that Ahab has changed or that the people have turned back to God. But God in his mercy has said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and send the rain. So he sends Elijah back and Elijah meets Obadiah. And I think it's, it's uh, the whole way that God did all of that before that shapes Elijah, uh, Obadiah's response. Because this is what you find as you start in verse 9. This is Obadiah speaking to Elijah. How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? Then he explains, verse 10. As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here... He would take an oath of the kingdom or nation they had not found you. And now you say to me, go and tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And then verse 12, as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. 
And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. And then in verse 15, Elijah responds. As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Now, you and I would put verse 9 something like this today. What did I ever do to you that you're going to do this to me? What did I ever do? And then Obadiah explains, Ahab has looked everywhere for you. Everywhere except the creek in the middle of nowhere when Elijah was there and Zarephath when he was there with the widow. Now here's, again, some speculation, but you've got to wonder. Ahab's looking so hard for Elijah, what would he have done with him if he'd found him? What do you think he would have done? I think he would have done one of two things. He probably would have started off with a bribe. All right, Elijah, let's look at this situation. You come on the scene, you say no more rain, and there hasn't been any. But you also said, if you say the rain can start, it'll start. So what will it take? Do you want a nice house? Do, Do you want your own customized chariot? How much money do you want? Just tell me. We'll give it to you. And if that didn't work, put him to torture. He said the word... He can say the right words, so let's make him say the right words. Let's get this rain going again. Now, we're not told that, but that would certainly fit with Ahab's character, what we know of him as a person. And so that's why God has hidden Elijah for all this time. And then, if you catch what Obadiah is saying in verse 12, He's basically saying, Elijah, how do I know that I go off and find Ahab and the Spirit of God doesn't take you away again like he did the first time? And so Elijah assures him, I'm going to speak to Ahab today. Don't worry about it. And so he goes, and then we see what happens next, starting in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, It is you, you troubler of Israel. And Elijah answers, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Something very interesting right there. You look at verse 19. Elijah tells Ahab what to do, and as you read on further, Ahab does exactly what Elijah said. He gathers all the people, he gathers all the prophets, and we're not told why, but here's what's unusual. Ahab is the king. In that day, the king could do pretty much whatever he wanted, and people didn't tell him what to do. Yet Elijah is doing that, and Ahab follows. But in verses 17 and 18, you see two different interpretations of the same situation. Ahab's first words when he sees Elijah... Is it you, Elijah? You're the one who's caused all this mess. We haven't had any rain for three years, and it's all because of you. What is he doing? What is Ahab doing? He's blame-shifting. He's accusing Elijah 
And don't all of us do that at some time or other? We blame shift? Elijah responds, and not just Elijah, but this is God speaking through Elijah. and says, no, Ahab, you're the one. You're the one who has troubled your nation. And then he explains how Ahab has troubled Israel. He says, first, you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord. And I believe there he's referring to this practice that Ahab has followed since Jeroboam, and that is the corrupted worship of God with the two golden calves, the two statues. Because that clearly breaks the second commandment. No graven images are to be used in worshiping God. But then he says, and Ahab, you've done this. You have followed the Baals, which is breaking the first commandment. For God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And to put that simply, God is saying, he is number one. He is the only God there is. There is no other, so don't worship anything or anything or anybody like you worship God. But we all do it all the time. Now, I think it was Martin Luther who said, and it probably wasn't original with him, if you break any of the commandments 2 through 10, you've also automatically broken number one. Okay, because if you and I have put God first in our lives and we recognize who he is and the claim he has on us, we're not going to break any of the other ones. Now, you look at Ahab, and I believe that Ahab is trying, as I said, to take, stay hold of two gods. I think he wants, on the one hand, to, to have both a tamed version of Yahweh, of God, and he also wants Baal. And he's not alone in this. Because you and I often also want a tamed version of God. We want a genie God. Lots of power, but I get to tell him what to do. We want a genie God, and then we have all our other desires, which, again, the Bible calls idols. Because we, we look to them for life. We look for them to give us what only God can give us. So we do the same thing, and in doing that, we're trying to use God to get what we want. And when we're in that place of sinfulness and brokenness, we're not seeing God accurately, and we're not seeing ourselves accurately. We're thinking that we are autonomous, that we're in control, that we're independent, that we're the ones who get to choose what life ought to be. And of course, God, if he really loves me, is going to you know, give me what I ask for and all these other people and these other things. And instead, what God does is he demands, and rightly demands, our exclusive loyalty to him. And he can demand that of us because he created us and he sustains us. The reason you and I are breathing today is because he gives us breath and life. So how does all of this speak to us today? Well, first we see in our verses, we see a hostile response to God and God's word. The Jeroboam's twisting of the worship of God, the corruption, is a hostile response to God. Ahab bringing in and spreading the worship of Baal is hostile. Jezebel killing the prophets of God is very clearly hostile. And, and the result of all of this is to silence and replace God's word. But that didn't happen just then. Today, people are trying to use in, in the United States the civil law as a club to threaten people and to coerce people from speaking God's word 
and living according to God's Word in public and replace that with their ideas on identity and abortion and marriage and sexuality and all kinds of other things. It's going on today. Secondly, there is real enmity between God's Spirit and evil. In Galatians 5, God talks about a war between the Spirit and the desires of the flesh, which is our natural desires, and that war takes many forms, and it is spiritual. And you and I cannot separate the spiritual part of our lives from the rest of our lives. Part of the, again, part of the current Western philosophy is that, that the spiritual doesn't exist, or if you want it, it's optional. You don't have to have it, but if you do, limit it to Sunday mornings and what you do at home in private, but don't let it touch anything you do in public, which is impossible because God made us as spiritual beings. You're spiritual when you mow the grass. You're spiritual when you come to church. You're spiritual when you fix dinner. You're spiritual driving. Everything and everything you do, it is a spiritual activity because we are spiritual beings. Then as I just talked about, God exposes and threatens our imagined autonomy. And I've already mentioned that one of the ways you see God having done that is with COVID-19. We thought life was good, or many people thought life was good, and all of a sudden everything's turned upside down. Just from this little bug you can't even see. We are not independent from God, and we are dependent on God, and we always will be. And then we see three responses to hostility to God and God's Word. We see them in our verses and in the people that are involved. First is to withdraw or hide. And that is a valid response at times, but it is not the only response. It's God who hides Elijah for three years. God uses Obadiah to hide the prophets of God. Again, it's not just then. Today, we have underground churches in countries where Christianity is forbidden or oppressed. And there's a real question among missions groups in countries that are not in that situation. And that is this. Should those churches stay underground or should they publicly declare themselves? And there's a split opinion as to what it ought to be. One option, withdraw or hide. Second, stay in place and serve God. You see that with Obadiah. He's in Ahab's household. You see it with Joseph. You see it with Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar, and in other situations. And in this case, God calls a person to serve God and to serve someone who doesn't acknowledge God for who he is. But it isn't just political situations. It isn't just these really big situations. It can occur for you at work. If you have a boss who's hostile to Christianity, it can occur in a marriage where you have a husband and wife and one is a, a Christian and one is not. It can happen in relationships in many different situations. And God is the one that calls us to these and God is the one that gives us the strength and the wisdom in the middle of these as well. And God doesn't guarantee a good change in our circumstances in our lifetime. Often he will, 
will act, but not always. Though what he does guarantee is this, justice will ultimately be served. And that's both a good thing and a terrifying thing. It's good because as human beings, we have a sense we want justice to be served. And as Jesse said, we see plenty of injustice. But it's terrifying when we realize if God is just, I'm in trouble if I don't have some kind of help. And God offers us that help and that mercy and that forgiveness. And then the third response is confronting evil. You see Elijah doing this last week as he confronts Ahab and pronounces no rain. You see Elijah doing it again today as he confronts Ahab and points the finger and says, you're the one who's caused the problem. You're the one who's turned away from God. And we'll see it next week as Elijah confronts more evil. You and I are living in a culture that was for a long time Christianized but is becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity and to the Bible. And one of the things to see from this passage today is that we are not the first to face this. As God has us where we are, we can and should certainly seek to promote what is right and good, and as we're able to limit the spread of everything that is contrary to God's Word, yet God hasn't given us the responsibility to fix the world. He is still sovereign, Yet, when we think about what God allows and what His plan is, there are times where God allows evil to flourish for a while. And then there are times where God uses individuals and people and churches and creates movements that changes history. Think of William Wilberforce, who was uh, a politician in England. And God grabbed a hold of him, and God used him for 40 years in British Parliament to work against slavery. And it wasn't until his, he was on his deathbed that he heard that the law had finally been passed that abolished slavery altogether. God used him in that way. And so as we look at our current situation, as we look at what we see in the Old Testament, remember that God is sovereign. He is in control he calls us to trust Him and to depend upon Him and to worship Him. Recognizing that God is working out His plans for all of mankind. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank You that You are in control, that You are great and powerful and good and just and merciful. We pray, Lord, that you would work in us because we need you to work in us so that we can trust you, that we will depend upon you. Lord, help us to worship you as we walk through these times, times that sometimes we, we enjoy greatly and sometimes that are very trying. Help us to worship you always. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond with a song.